Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this podcast a little bit early uh, on Tuesday, June 19th. And the reason we're recording early is because Alice just got a new job and has a big work trip already. So Alice, welcome and tell me about your new job. I am extremely excited about my new job, so I would be delighted to tell you about it. Um, I'm not going to say where it is because I'm a cagey older millennial, but um, <laughs> it is. Uh, but it's a book job, and I'm so psyched because I feel like like working full time with books has obviously been sort of like a slowly reached goal. Um, as uh, I've been working with Book Riot for. Uh, some number of years. I don't remember. And, um, but yeah, no, it's super exciting. Uh, I'm going to this, uh, on this work trip on my third day of work, uh, because it's, uh, it had to happen real quick, but it has to do with libraries. And we, I think that that's extra exciting for this podcast because you also have your, your job has something to do with libraries. Yes. I, uh, I started a job last October. Um, kind of switching fields from journalism into working doing communications and social media for a public library system. So yeah, like you, the like shift from career to career in books and kind of taking the side hustle of book riot and blogging and all of that into a full-time job that's related to books in a way. Um, yeah, it was slow, but also exciting and kind of a cool thing. So yeah, and we both work in libraries now, which is, which is cool. Well, and I feel like uh, one of those, you know, like it can be difficult to figure out like, what do I want to do with my life? Um, Mm -hmm. But I think when you kind of look at, well, it's tricky because I think if you look at what you're doing for fun, but then you also don't want to like ruin the thing you do for fun and make it your work thing. Yeah. So I think Mm -hmm. it's all about, I was talking with a friend, I think it's all about finding something that's like adjacent to the thing that you do for fun. So it doesn't specifically impact that thing, but it's like you still enjoy the work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Yeah. So I feel like that's this thing. So I'm, I'm very psyched. Um, but let's see. Oh, we have our – let's just start right off the bat. Let's talk about our sponsor for this episode. Yes, please. Fantastic. This episode is brought to you by Book Riot's own annotated podcast annotated is an audio documentary podcast series about books language and reading episodes range from 15 to 25 minutes long so you know it's like it's like a good walk just like go for a walk listen to it get some exercise cover it covers a whole range of bookish topics past episodes have covered how jp morgan's personal librarian became the most glamorous librarian in the world even as she guarded a dangerous secret the wild story of how 1984 came to be written and how the cia got involved which you know honestly i i believe that and an exploration <laughs> of why we care so much about the Oxford comma that begins unexpectedly with a love story, a very nerdy love story. 
Um, so basically, if you love podcasts like This American Life, Planet Money, or 99% Invisible, uh, you're probably going to love Annotated. So uh, give it a listen in your favorite podcast app of choice. Thanks for sponsoring Annotated. Yes, and I will put in my endorsement of Annotated. It's a really fun little podcast to just jump into and you get like a 20, 25-minute story about something in books. And they hist- there's some that are history. There's some that are more contemporary. They're, um, they're just really fun and a good little time passer that you also learn a little bit about books and their reading life. So yay, Annotated. Uh, All right. So now that we're done with the first sponsor, we're going to hop into our usual first segment, which is new books, uh, books that are coming out soon, have come out very recently that we are excited about or interested in finding out more about when they're finally available. So um, my first book for this week is called Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude by Stephanie Rosenblum. Uh, And this is a book about how being alone as a traveler, uh, even if you're just kind of being alone in your own city, can allow you to be uh, more aware of the world around you. Um, And so Stephanie Rosenblum is a staff columnist for the travel section of the New York Times. So she has a kind of a work and personal connection to the topic. Um, So she... In the book, share some of her personal experiences about being kind of a solo traveler, a solo person in the world, um, and then brings in stories from artists and writers and innovators who have enjoyed solitude or have used solitude as a way to kind of inspire their creativity or give them the space they need to do their thinking and creative work. Um, and so the four cities that she talks about in the book are Paris, Istanbul, Florence, and New York, um, which um, she notes are all like pedestrian-friendly cities. So it's kind of solitude and also the ability to to meander those cities and be part of that space in a without having to get in a car or use public transportation or anything like that. Um, and then she connects each of those cities with a, a theme associated with solitude. So um, there's creativity and learning and self-reliance and experimentation and all of those kinds of things. Um, and I books about sort of like meditation and and quieting your mind and simplicity and all of those things are kind of a side interest of mine. And so I'm always intrigued when I see another book kind of coming at that from a new way. Um, And I'm also an introvert. So I'm a person who really craves and appreciates my alone, quiet thinking time. So a book that kind of argues for for that and for that in different places seems like it would certainly be um, up my alley. So the title of that one is Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude by Stephanie Rosenblum. Gosh, you know, when you were describing that, I was first of all like, this sounds extraordinarily familiar. Um, and so I just started thinking about all all the tri- trips I've done like by myself, <laughs> which sounds sad on the outset of it. But of course, that is the opposite of the point of this book. Um, no, but I, I think that there is like tremendous value and um, in doing some alone travel, even if you're traveling with someone else, I think there is uh, a lot of room for possibility for you to like split up and do your own thing for mm-hmm. like a day or something. Um, I my, my modus operandi used to be that I would go to cities where my friends lived and visit them. But I knew that the things I wanted to do were very frequently not the things they wanted to do. Like I visited my friend in Boston and I was like, I am going to be going on a John Adams tour. Uh <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, it's like that kind of thing, right? Where I'm like, I don't expect you to do this. I am very comfortable doing it by myself. And then you get to really focus and just like think about the experience and not like you have fun with another person, but then it's much more about like your relationship and like what you are experiencing Mm -hmm. together, um, as opposed to interacting with, like she says, the world. I think this sounds great. (laughs) I'm 
sorry. That's like my basic summation <laughs> of my thoughts there on this book that, that you looked up. Um, yeah. So alone time. All right. Yeah. I will put that on the list. Um, my first choice, uh, and I have to admit because of my new job, I have not, I've only read like scant amounts of, of my, my new picks. Um, I've read all of the ones that for the later segment, but, um, Mm -hmm. my first pick is troublesome science, the misuse of genetics and genomics in understanding race by Rob DeSalle and Ian Tattersall. And that is out, uh, the day we're recording this June 19th. So it's already out, um, from Columbia university press. So Columbia's kind of uh, a summation of this is basically that um, it is well established that all humans today, wherever they live, belong to one single species, yet the even many people who claim to abhor racism take for granted that human races have a biological reality. So basically in this book, um, Rob DeSalle and Ian Tattersall uh, provide a very forceful critique of how scientific tools have been misused to uphold misguided racial categorizations. So um, when they're talking about the misuse of genetics and genomics, so Rob DeSalle works in molecular systematics, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds very fancy. Sounds very fancy. Right. At the American Museum of Natural History and Ian Tattersall, who has written a number of very readable looking books, which I now very much want to pick up, um, is an emeritus curator at uh, the Spitzer Hall of Human Origins at the American Museum of Natural History. So I'm assuming that's how they hooked Mm -hmm. up, as as it were. Um, (laughs) And I mean, I don't know their lives. And uh, so they talk about it's basically it gets into the science, but it also um, they talk about how the use of genetic uh, data to trace human or they look sorry, I totally said that wrong. They just as they detail the use of genetic data to trace human origins and look at how scientists have attempted to recognize discrete populations within Homo sapiens, but then saying that that is complete garbage and like they like basically people are trying to prove that there are these difference like genetically between races and then it's like no it's junk science uh there are not actually genuine differences so um i think it sounds super good again it's troublesome science the misuse of genetics and genomics in understanding race by rob desal and ian Ian tattersall which is a fun last name yeah that sounds super interesting um we were just at the science museum last week um and the Minnesota Science Museum has an interesting ex- exhibit on race, and they kind of make the same argument throughout the exhibit as this one does, that the race is uh, constructed to make us think about ourselves as differently, but really, like, it doesn't mean anything, and that it has no kind of scientific basis. So at least that was part of what I took from the exhibit. So um, interesting, like, kind of random connection there for something I just was thinking about. Awesome. Um, Yeah. So my second uh, pick is called The Ambition Decisions, What Women Know About Work, Family, and the Path to Building a Life by Hannah Shank and Elizabeth Wallace. Um, And so the premise behind this book is the idea that there is no template for women to follow about how to live in relation to their jobs, their marriages, their children, et cetera, because of the way that the feminist movement has sort of re re formed the whole opportunities that women have and that we have so many more opportunities to choose from, but there's no, um, there's no guidebook for how to do that. And so, um, the, the journalists who wrote this book kind of were thinking or thinking of the idea that we're sort of all just making these decisions without really having any information to, to make them with. Um, and so, these two women decided that they were going to reach out to their contemporaries, other women um, who kind of graduated into the opportunities of the second wave of feminism, um, to 
see what uh, women who are set to reap these rewards, um, where did their ambition lead them? What kind of choices did they have to make? And what can the rest of us learn from women who have had to make these decisions? So um, the book is a a kind of result of hundreds of hours of interviews. They gathered a lot of data and they looked at um, specific kind of points of major decisions to see what these women who they interviewed, what their experiences and then what data tells us about what we what we know about what those decisions mean. Um, and the reason that this one caught my attention is because it reminded me a lot of a book that I really, really love, uh, which is called 168 Hours by Laura Vanderkam. Um, and in that book, Laura Vanderkam is looking at um, time management and the decisions and, and stories we tell ourselves about busyness and our kind of obligations and what it looks like when we start to think of our time as um, 168 hours in a week rather than 24 hours in a day. And she kind of uses the same approach in the way that the book is put together and that she does a ton of in-depth interviews, but then relies on a lot of data, um, these like time study surveys and stuff like that, um, and really pulls that together to say, these are some things that I have learned about how people use their time. Um, And so this book kind of coming at this different questions, but with a similar approach, it it felt like, um, seemed super interesting to me. And I'm ambition and and balancing work and career and whether we can even like balance those kinds of or excuse me work and family um and whether like that is even possible is a really interesting kind of contemporary question for me so um this one i think it came out today june 19th so i feel like i'm gonna go to barnes and noble tomorrow and (laughs) buy it because i'm super curious about it um so yeah that was the ambition decisions by hannah shank and elizabeth wallace oh dang um, okay, so I super want to read 168 hours, but this one also looks very good. <laughs> um, but when you said when you're talking about like, thinking of time in terms of a week instead of a day, first of all, I love that because I'm constantly mm-hmm. worrying about like wasting time and like all this stuff. And then it reminded me, have you ever read the children's book uh, Momo by Michael Enda? No, I haven't. I feel like it's one of those like I feel like it's pretty obscure and I don't remember how I found out about it. Michael Enda also wrote The Neverending Story. Um, Yeah. So, But Momo is about this little girl and she lives in this town and basically it's also called The the Gray Gentleman or The Men in Gray because it's translated from German. Um, But it's about these men who show up and they have this thing called the Time Savings Bank and they have this thing where it's like, oh, you can save time. You can deposit it in the bank and it'll be returned later with interest. And so then all these people are – they forget about these men after they meet them, but then they're, like, still resolved that they have to save as much time as they can for, like, later use. Oh, right? And I was just like – I remember that stuck with me. I think I read it when I was a teenager. Um, but that's – it's that thing, right, where we're, we're constantly, yeah. like, talking about time saving. And then I think that any book that talks about how we can um, reframe our idea of how we think about time um, sounds – awesome um so Mm -hmm. so basically both of these although it does sound like this um the ambition decisions um the new one you're talking about is is also more about um has like a feminist bent to it right yeah i think so under 68 hours um she's written laura vanderkam has written several books but um and with more focus on women and feminist issues she has one that just came out i think i think think it's called off the clock and it's about specifically about women and how they use their time outside of work to have you know the best lives that they can Um, but 168 hours isn't particularly feminist it's although i will say it's very um very i would say like white and privileged in the sense that like it's for people and like 
white is such a, it's, it's more for people who have like corporate nine, what we think of as like nine to five office jobs, I think, or executive positions rather than people who work in like retail or something like that. Like I think the stuff she's arguing is more, more white collar than blue collar perhaps, but it's still really, still a really interesting book, just kind of limited in scope, I guess. Um, maybe the the best way to talk about it. But anyway, uh, yeah. So anyway. Well, on the, on the subject of feminism, we can move ah, on to – Yep, yep, yep. Got it. Uh, we can move on to my next pick, um, which I don't like this word, but, <laughs> but I'm going to say it. So it's called 90s Bitch, uh, Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality by Alison Yarrow, um, which is also out June 19th, so it's already out, uh, by HarperCollins. So I love the first sentence of the description, which is to understand how we got here, we have to rewind the VHS tape. <laughs> um, so great. So it basically tells the story of, uh, and it's obviously a real story because it's nonfiction, of women and girls in the 1990s um, and exploring how they were maligned by the media, vilified by popular culture, and objectified in the marketplace. So the description, uh, as you and I were we're chit-chatting about right before we started uh, here is it says trailblazing women like Hillary Clinton, Anita Hill, Marsha Clark, and Roseanne Barr were undermined. Mm. And it's like, oh, it's a, it was, the book came out just a little too late to catch <laughs> that yeah. last thing. I mean, I'm sure that Roseanne Barr was undermined, um, but obviously she is not uh, in seen in the best light at the moment for for yeah. good reason. Yeah. Um, but so I'm sure that it talks about her uh, again. I've, I've only sort of like read the beginning, but I do think um, Hillary Clinton, Anita Hill and Marsha Clark are are all uh, excellent stat- like case studies yeah. for that kind of thing, um, especially like I know that we were both like pretty young in the 90s, but I still remember like all of the I don't remember Anita Hill, but I remember what people were saying about Marsha Clark mm-hmm. and definitely Hillary Clinton. My parents hated her. Um, Monica Lewinsky, uh, Tanya Harding, and Lorena Bobbitt. Like all they should they cover all these people. So it's a very obviously like 90s saturated book. Um, it starts out talking about how with the Gulf War, we had the 24-hour news cycle. And that once the war ended, news companies realized that not only was it much uh cheaper to not like, you know, send correspondence over to like be filming and co- covering a war. But it was also people were really into things like sex scandals, you know. And so the 24-hour news cycle, number one, needed content. And number two, it was like this is cheap and easy content. It's kind of like, you know, reality shows today except um, it's – I mean, I'm not going to get into like gender and reality shows. But um, this whole whole idea of – of sex scandals specifically implicating the woman, right, as being, like, yeah. the shamed one. Um, and that happened uh, for sure a lot in the 90s. Um, I went – gosh, I, it doesn't really matter probably, but what year did Monica Lewinsky happen? Was that, like, 96 or something? Gosh, I don't even remember. Yeah, but it's, like, mid-90s. Anyway, so uh, the, their last thing is basically that Yarrow's thoughtful – Okay, juicy and timely examination is a must read for anyone trying to understand 21st century sexism and end it for the next generation. So basically one of those, you know, like, how did we get here? Like, what is what is influencing our current media? Like, because what was it? uh, Where from whence does it come Um, (laughs) in the the 90s? Uh, So, yeah, I think it sounds really good. Again, it's 90s Bitch by Allison Yarrow. Yeah, that one sounds really good. It's like if you're going to put together sort of a timeline of like decades of feminism. Like I'm trying to think if I can think of another one that's specifically like 1990s sort of between the 80s wave and then like contemporary. And I'm not sure. 
Wasn't the yeah, 90s Riot Girl? Oh, maybe. So I think yeah. I normally, when I hear of the 90s, I think of like Clueless and like, but and like Meredith Brooks, like singing <laughs> bitch and like all this stuff. And so yeah. I'm like, well, 90s was like super feminist. So I think it's it's good to have a book that's like, uh, here's how it was like not great. Um, yeah. But yeah, anyway, what's your next pick? Yeah, I just have one real quick one at the end because when I was trying to decide what I wanted to talk about, I couldn't pick between the three of them. Um, so this last one is called Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America by Alyssa Court. Um, and this is just an investigative look into like what it costs to have a family. So um, she looks at, and then a lot of the issues that are sort of making it harder and harder to afford being a family. So stuff like really expensive childcare, uh, you know, difficult employment policies, lack of family leave, lack of consistent working hours, um, basically kind of all of the things in society and the way that our workplaces exist today that make it so that people who are part of, who have families can't really live the same way that our parents did. Or if they do, it's really, really hard to do that. Um, you know, I think about a lot of my, all of my friends are with kids. Both of them have jobs because it's really hard to live as a single um, income family now, which my family did uh, when I was growing up. So stuff like that. Um, and so she also in the book looks at how the country have has sort of failed people who want to have families and not supported families in in ways by by addressing some of these issues like childcare and whatnot. So um, the book looks at some of these problems and outlines both some policy solution and some sort of do-it-yourself tactics that people can take to try and address that, which um, I haven't gotten to read this one, so I don't know exactly what that means. But um, I think it's a really interesting um, question, just thinking about all the ways in which the economic world that we are part of is not the same as it was even... 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I don't I don't so. understand how like financially basically how the world used to work based on the fact that so many women did used to stay at home. I'm like how like how did that work percentage-wise with income and paying for a house, you know, like all all of this stuff. Um my friends are some of my friends are pregnant right now and yeah, they're like trying to like cobble together all their their vacation time and their sick time so that they can like stay with the baby long enough for it to be able to go to daycare and I'm just like this is insane. <laughs> you know, like why yeah. aren't if if we have such an emphasis on not to turn this into like a, a daytime talk radio show, but if we have such an <laughs> emphasis in this country on uh, on the family and, you know, like how important it is, then why do we have zero follow up support for that? I mean, obviously, then we have this horror happening at the border, but um, there's just so much in terms of even just like our day to day uh within all like all across America where I'm like policy wise this is not lining up and this uh especially compared to the rest of the world pretty much um our our policies are are like a joke in this area so uh yeah this book sounds really good <laughs> yes my, uh, I am I'm, I'm nodding along to you uh but of course no one can see that cuz we're podcasting but I am nodding along cuz I agree ah uh, yeah so that book was squeezed why our families can't afford america by Alyssa Court uh, and so that is our last uh, selection for new books. So I feel like those were all pretty, pretty on brand for <laughs> what we're interested in. Uh -huh. um, and so this week we're going to kind of do like we did last week and do kind of one big long segment on a theme, uh, our weekly theme. Uh, and this week it is Pride Month because we are at the end of June and we haven't gotten to talk about Pride Month yet. So these are all books that we think are great to read during Pride Month, really great to read anytime, but somehow connected to 
to that. So, uh, Alice, do you want to go first? I would love to. Um, I am delighted that we're doing this theme. I'm missing Chicago Pride for the first time uh, since I came out because of this uh, this work trip. So this is this is my own little personal Pride celebration right here. Okay. Oh, um. So my my first pick. These are all books that I read pretty much early on when I was coming out. So probably about six years ago. Um. And they I really liked them all for for different reasons. Um. So uh, the first one is Dear John. I love Jane. Women writing about, sorry, women write about leaving men for women by Candace Walsh. Uh, it came out in 2010. Um, so uh, legality wise, uh, a lot of, of sort of LGBT stuff in America was different um, mm-hmm. when it came out. But I recommend this a lot to people. Like I have friends who come out who are uh, who have recently come out and have a lot of questions. And this is usually like my first recommendation for them because it's a series. They're all like true letters or essays that different women wrote. Um, and they all have sort of like identify, you know, like differently. Like some of them are bi, some of them are just like queer, some are pan. Um, but it, they all had to, they were in relationships with men and then decided to leave those relationships and kind of all a lot of them had ended up having like different configurations. Some of them became poly. Like there was just a lot um, where I feel like there's something in that book for everyone. And uh, for me, and it also like covers a, a range of ages. Like there was just, there was, it was a lot of, it was, it's really good content and a lot of really relatable stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I, it's probably good if you're not queer. I don't know. I <laughs> I use it as as such like a, you know, like here is your first text you should read. Um, Welcome. Uh, Kind of book that um, I think probably just in terms of people like getting an idea of the breadth of experience among humanity, it's probably good. But um, again, anyway, that's Dear John, I Love Jane, uh, Women Write About Leaving Men for Women by Candace Walsh. Interesting. Good pick. Thank you. Um, So my first pick is also a little bit older. It was published in 2013, and it's called Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America by Jeff Chu. Um, And I read this book when it came out back in 2013. And at the time, I was working as the editor of a small town newspaper in rural Minnesota. And so we were kind of there was I lived it was a college town surrounded by a very conservative rural community. Um, And so at the time we were there are just a lot. I'm trying to remember if 2013 was 2013-2014 was when Minnesota was trying to pass an amendment to legalize gay marriage. And I can't remember what year it was now, but that issue of faith and homosexuality was a really big deal in the town that I lived in. And there were a lot of letters to the editor going back and forth with people quoting scripture back and forth at each other about um, just about homosexuality and whether it was a sin or not, which obviously it's not. Um, so in this book, Jeff Shue is a, he's a gay journalist and he looks at a, a year, he does The book is about his year-long pilgrimage to ask tough questions about why so many people who can read the same scriptures and follow the same God can end up in different places on issues of faith, the church, and homosexuality. So um, the book is about kind of his personal faith journey, both on, you know, coming out as gay and then how he reconciled that with his personal faith. Um, But also he just interviews a ton and ton of people asking them about their feelings about this. And he gives, the book gives them all a lot of space to share their opinions and their views about it, which I really appreciated. Um, The other thing I really liked about it is that it was a very empathetic book. Um, He really approaches every person he talks to with compassion, even if they're people that he thinks that he's going to disagree with. And he is very careful to um, only critique them on the basis of like logic and whether 
their arguments are consistent or not, uh, not them as people. Um, and the one chapter that I remember sticking out to me very particularly was um, one where he went to go talk to the people at Westboro Baptist Church. Um, and he is very clear that like, he doesn't agree with them. He doesn't think what they do is right. Um, and he brought friends along with him because he was nervous to go there and talk to them as a gay Christian. Um, but he And he calls them out in the chapter about kind of the terrible things that they do in protesting at veterans' funerals and stuff like that. Um, but I appreciated that he went there to talk to them and gave them a little bit of space to at least try and explain why they do the things that they do, even if I still don't think that it's right. And I don't know that many people would. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I remember reading this book and thinking like, yes, okay, I, I understand better because I'm, I'm not religious and I'm not gay. And so this really brought together two things that I don't know a lot about and that I wanted to try and understand how they connected better. And he really brought that together for me in a really interesting, thoughtful, empathetic way. So um, it's one I really liked back when I read it. And I think it probably, like I said, like you said, the the legal issues have changed very dramatically since then, but um, I think still probably a good book and worth reading. Um, So that's called Does Jesus Really Love Me by Jeff Chu. Um, Speaking of someone, speaking as someone who is uh, both religious and gay, um, <laughs> that uh, that sounds that sounds really good. Um, I would I would tack on as kind of like a companion book, um, something that came out in two thousand nine, which is Jesus, the Bible, and Homosexuality by Jack Rogers, um, which my mom actually sent me uh, after she was a little more okay with me coming out because she knew that I was I was struggling with um, uh, being a Christian and and um, and being gay. So one of the things that, that I I enjoy about what you were talking about is, um, talking about how people can read the same scripture and, and come to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. We, my pastor, actually, I go, I go to a Presbyterian church and my, my pastor, while I was kind of in the coming out sort of phase, uh, I had a lot of like self loathing and I was telling him, I was listening to these like basically horrific sermons by these anti-gay people because I was trying to, hear their arguments because I came from a very conservative, um, literal Bible background. And I was trying to like hear their arguments and learn how to like, I was like, okay, I'll listen to them. And then I'll come up with how to respond to them using their logic, which of course is a horrible idea. And so he did a Bible study with us, um, on the Bible and homosexuality. And one of the things he said that I enjoyed the most or that I, that stuck with me the most was that, um, you know, he did a similar study with a a former uh, church he was with and someone said um, there is nothing in the Bible that condemns slavery and how that is very awkward feeling. Right. And the only verses you can find Mm -hmm. in the Bible support slavery. Um, And so what he said, he he was like, it's very similar to, um, to homosexuality because of course the verses that talk about homosexuality in the the Bible are not talking about it as we know it. A lot of it is, is, is basically pedophilia, which of course we are still against. Um, but so it's like, yes, Paul, we agree with you. Um, but, uh, what he said was that what you have to look at with the Bible is, is basically the overarching, um, themes and, and, um, messages and those have to do right with like love and compassion and all of this. And if you were just looking at these very specific verses, um, it's in in isolation, isolation. it's really easy to misread them. So, um, I don't know if he gets into that in the book, but, um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. But that, that does sound good. So that's, that's, does Jesus really love me by Jeff Chu? I didn't want to get too far away from the title. Sorry. 
<laughs> reminds some people. Um, oh, speaking of, sorry. Uh, my next pick is uh, not to just monologue and then go off on another monologue. Um, my next pick is surpassing the love of men, romantic friendship and love between women from the Renaissance to the present by Lillian Faderman. I know the title is bad. I know that. <laughs> um, it's from 1981. Uh, she's writing in a very reactive kind of way. Uh, you know, if you think about, uh, especially lesbian, um, history or, or just activity in the seventies and eighties, there was a lot of very anti-rhetoric. Um, so by, I think surpassing the love of men might actually be a quote too, but when I first saw it at the library, I did a giant eye roll and I was like, absolutely not. And then I found out it is in fact this amazing, very detailed, um, just literary and historical study of queer women and i was like yeah it's so good and she um especially given the fact that she had zero internet at the time to do this research and she (laughs) she finds all these extremely obscure things she is the one i believe lillian faderman who has written a bunch of books she is still alive um she is the one who I think coined the term romantic friendship because she was like, we cannot historically say that these women were lesbians. Um, we don't know. And so she was like, we can mm-hmm. say that, you know, this, there's this term romantic friendship. I think I even wrote to her. I wrote an email to her asking about um, Helena Landless and Rosa Budd and Dickens's The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And I think she was like, no, we can't. Like, it's the romantic friendship. And I was like, at the time, I was like, stupid romantic <laughs> friendship, whatever. But um, I think it's a convenient term. Um, anyway, in terms of just getting an overview and learning a lot about, like, just representations of queer women, um, however you want to define that, from literally, like, it's, I think it's like the 1500s until the 1980s. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. So, again, Surpassing the Love of Men, uh, sorry, by Lillian Faderman. <laughs> interesting that does sound good despite the like not very interesting title um cool so uh, my next pick is a contemporary book it just came out i think in march of this year and it's called tomorrow will be different by sarah mcbride Uh, and this is a memoir by a woman who is a transgender activist and also a young widow Uh, and the book is kind of about her experience coming out as transgender um, her work advocating for trans rights and then her experience of losing her husband to cancer when she was just 24 Um, and so sarah she uh, came out publicly as transgender in college um, after her tenure as student body president at American University. Um, And after she became kind of a public figure in that way, because she um, was uh, before that as a a high school student in in college, she worked with um, a lot of prominent Democratic um, people in Delaware, uh, including, gosh, I'm blanking on names, but anyway, in Delaware. And so after she graduated from college, she went back to work in Delaware to pass a law to prevent discrimination for transgender people. And she was part of a campaign uh, in Delaware where they passed both a marriage equality law and a transgender non-discrimination law in the same legislative session, which had never been done before. Um, And so she writes about that experience, what she learned being an advocate for transgender people and working through the legislature and kind of her family um, her family's experience when she came out as transgender um, and how that affected her parents and her siblings and kind of how they have come together as a family. Um, now, today, she is the National Press Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, and she was also the first trans- transgender American to address a major party convention. She spoke at the DFL convention uh, in 
I'm blanking on the year, but uh, she spoke in the major party convention. Um, and so tomorrow will be different. It's just really like a, a it's not a coming of age memoir exactly, but that but that's basically what it is, right? She starts talking about herself as a child and how she knew that she just wasn't in the right body and that she was a girl. Um, and then kind of how that she struggled with that in high school and how in college she finally found the courage to come out and tell people that, how she told her parents, and then how she became an advocate. Um, and so as she's kind of tracing her story, she's also always connecting her experiences back to kind of a more general discussion of what of issues facing transgender people. So there's a, a long discussion about healthcare and kind of the anxiety that um, some transgender people are many transgender people, I assume, feel going into hospitals and having to try and navigate with healthcare professionals who may or may not be sympathetic to them. Um, uh, uh, issues about workplace discrimination and how there are not discrimination laws in place to protect transgender people in the workplace in many states. Um, issues about family support, issue about suicide rates and how that is affected by the support of people that they have in their lives. Um, and so it's a very informative book while also being a very like touching and like I don't know. I've like teared up several times reading it because it's really sweet and lovely and sad and difficult to read in parts. Um, the one thing I will say is that um, if I feel like in her voice, you can kind of tell that she's very used to spending a lot of time talking to people who don't know anything about what it means to be transgender because a lot of sometimes it feels a little bit like this is going to sound mean and that is not a, not how I intended at all, but it feels a little bit like LGBTQ 101. Like, here's my story and here's some information that you might need to know about transgender people. And it feels very like explainy in parts, but not in a bad way, even though the way I'm describing it makes it sound like it's in a bad way. I think, um, I really, I really have enjoyed it. And I feel like I have learned just kind of a lot of things that I, I knew, but didn't really fully understand. And it's given me an, a, a, a better and more thorough perspective on all of the issues that transgender people face even today in the United States and continue to face in the political climate we live in now. Um, so it's a really, really, really interesting, good memoir, and I've enjoyed it very much. Um, I'm just maybe like 20 pages from the end at this point. So uh, the book is Tomorrow Will Be Different by Sarah McBride. Gosh, thank you for picking that. That was like, while you were talking about it, I just like was sort of like rocketed back in time. And I was thinking about how even though everything is so generally nightmarish right now in our country, um, we're still able to, you know, like have this theme in our podcast. And like this, this woman is able to write this book and have it published. And like, so in, in certain ways, like we're so much farther down the road than we were like 10 years ago, even. Um, and that just, that, that alone, that makes me happy, <laughs> you know? Oh gosh. Um, no, that sounds good. Uh, and kind of that sort of leads into, um, I think it's my final pick. Yeah. Um, which is Mm -hmm. then comes marriage United States V Windsor and the defeat of Doma by Roberta Kaplan with Lisa Dickey. And this came out in 2015. Um, so Roberta Kaplan, I, I was like a huge Roberta Kaplan fangirl in 2013. Um, she is the lawyer who basically took the case of United States v. Windsor all the way to the Supreme Court in 2013, um, ultimately arguing for and achieving the striking down of Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, um, which was enacted in, I think, 1996 under Bill Clinton because um, 
Hawaii was trying to, it's this whole thing, but Hawaii was trying to pass gay marriage or marriage equality. And um, all the states, states freaked out and, you know, put up, a lot of them put up this um, constitutional um, marriage equality ban. Um, and then at, they were trying to get a federal amendment passed against marriage equality. And Bill Clinton, I believe the story goes as sort of like a lesser version of that because he was like, well, we, we don't want an amendment. Um, had he signed mm-hmm. DOMA. So that's kind of, you know, when people say Bill Clinton supported it, that's supposed to be the story. Um, So what this did was it prohibited gay and lesbian married couples from being recognized at the federal level. So even if, you know, um, your state allowed it, yeah, then you still you couldn't get Social Security benefits. You couldn't joint uh, file taxes jointly. You couldn't get military pensions for bereaved spouses. Mm -hmm. And there were over a thousand other rights that were given to all other married couples in the United States, which is why in the arguments in Windsor, uh, United States v. Windsor, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said her famous, you know, like, this is skim milk marriage. Like, when you're saying that it's the same, it's not. And um, mm-hmm. I used I had that audio. You can get the audio from that trial, like, all Supreme Court um, oral arguments, and I had it on my phone. Um, it's really, uh, it's really good. It's really good. Um, but then comes marriage. So it came out, wow. uh, so 2015, so like two years after the decision. Um, and I feel like it's a necessary book it, for a nation that's like, I feel like we're already taking marriage equality for granted. And, you know, they're already trying to like certain states are trying to sort of basically um, erode some of those rights. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I get that this is probably like the, the taking it for granted is like a self-protective instinct um, because it was it was such a horrible time. Like even I came out right before that all that happened and it was, you know, I was watching like live uh, like Senate things like every <laughs> it felt like every day I was like streaming stuff and being like what's yeah. gonna happen and people saying the same like terrible things over and over again so you want to forget that right and you want to be like everything's fine now but her book it mm-hmm. takes you back like through the emotions you either felt during that fight or it makes you just feel them for the first time so it reminded me of like the best and the worst moments and then adding all this depth to it because she talks about like what was going on behind the scenes with like her and her like law firm because she's this like high powered lawyer um at the firm Paul Weiss and Associates uh so and then also like you know how they picked Edie Windsor's case to be like the case that you know they would take to the Supreme Court um it's just yeah. really good I have a lot Sorry, I had like a lot of feelings about the striking down of Doma and, you know, the eventual um, um, Obergefell. I don't even know the name of it. Doma was like my case where I was like, okay, this is going to happen. So this book is great. Again, it's Then Comes Marriage uh, by Roberta Kaplan. and Everyone should read it. Yeah, that reminds me about something that uh, was in Sarah McBride's book when she was talking about speaking in front of uh, the Delaware it's not their, they're not the House and Senate, they have different names, but speaking in front of those legislative bodies and about how, how frustrating it was for her to have to stand up there and argue for like basic dignity because all they were trying to pass, not all they were trying to pass, but they were trying to pass a thing that wouldn't allow you to discriminate against people who are transgender. And so just how frustrating and, and hard it was to stand up and feel like you were Aww. just arguing for basic dignity in front of people who, um, and it was it was really moving to me when she read that. So that's kind of what that book kind of reminds yeah. me of, kind of a similar thing, just about what that is like, um, having not had to do that myself. So um, yeah, good. Thank you for recommending that one. Um, my last pick is like 
I don't feel like a, a 180 and I almost feel bad bringing it up because it's such a bummer of a book. But um, it, uh, the book is The Fact of a Body by Alexandria Marzinov-Lesnovich. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to talk about it, or the, I read it for this segment, and the reason I did is because it recently won the 2018 Lambda Literary Award Ooh. for a lesbian memoir slash biography. Um, and so I thought, that's interesting. It's a, it's a true crime memoir, and that's a genre that I generally, you know, like and enjoy. Um, and since it won this Lambda Literary Award, which is uh, awards given for gay and lesbian um, books, they give a ton of them across a bunch of different genres. I thought, yes, this sounds interesting. I, I want to pick that up and talk about it for this segment because it's been on my bookshelf since it came out. Um, but it is really like, oh, it's a hard book to read. Um so the, the true crime thread of the book is the story of a Louisiana man who was convicted of molesting, molesting and murdering a six-year-old boy. Um, and the memoir side is how the author came to learn about this case and kind of what it, what personal uh, demons, I guess, it opened up for her. So uh, the case came to her attention while she was an intern at a law firm. Um, and it, remi- it brought up kind of memories and forced her to reckon with um, her childhood sexual abuse by her grandfather. Um, so the book jumps back and forth between kind of exploring this man's life and his crime and his incarceration and his court proceedings, along with her kind of reconciling her own personal history with um, pedophilia and her abuse by her grandfather and the way that her family um, really tried to like pretend that it didn't happen and like sweep it under the rug and not acknowledge that this was a part of their family's story and not support her in a way that she felt was the way that she needed to be supported. Um, And so the book has a lot in it about guilt and and truth and what it means to have people believe what we say and uh, kind of how we frame our stories and what stories we tell ourselves about our, you know, ourselves and other people in the world. Um, But yeah, it's a really hard book because it is very frank uh, in the discussion of pedophilia and sexual abuse. Um, It does not, she does not cut corners in any of that, um, which I think is admirable, but also, really hard to read. Um, just, just hard. Um, and the, the other part of it that I was a little, I struggled with a bit was she does a lot of, in the true crime sections, kind of a lot of imagining about like what his family might've thought and what happened to them and some of their story that kind of, there is no way to get. There's no, there's no way to find that information other than to imagine what it might've been. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of a pet peeve of mine in true crime. I always get a little bit like, why are you doing this? I would rather just tell me what you know and tell me what you don't and leave, leave the fictionalizing out of it. But that's kind of just a personal preference. And I think in the context of the book and the way that she's making arguments about uh, the stories we share and tell and remember, um, it it makes sense, but it was just a little, little pet peeve of mine, I guess. Um, So yeah, like, I'm not sure that this was even a good pick for pride month. I just, it, it, remember I remembered it was on my TBR and it won that award and I thought well let's see if this is a good one or not and it's a good book a difficult book but um I mean yeah you know, I don't it's, know what else it's, really a, it's a thing it. no I mean it's a thing that people deal with and I, I think that you know part of the um the shedding of some of I'm sure of that like internalized shame and stuff is reading about other people dealing with it and being like you know saying like this wasn't okay and then my family did this stuff and being like oh that's not how people should act. like I think that that's one of the reasons that we have books and we have memoirs and that kind of thing is, is to see our stories reflected in other people's and then realize, like, get see it from more of an outside perspective. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So I know I think that's a good pick. Um, I, I enjoyed though. Tell me what you know and tell me what you don't. I feel like it should be the, the subheading of our podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I will say, so she, she is gay. She's a lesbian. Um, and she writes a little bit about her coming out in the book, but it's not a major theme of it at all. And she's very explicit. Like her childhood sexual abuse has nothing to do with that, which I think should be fairly obvious, but, um, also like a thing that was explicitly stated in the book. So um, I think it won the lesbian member biography just for being written by someone who is lesbian, not necessarily because of the like gay and lesbian themes in it, if that makes any sense. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah. So anyway, okay. last book. There we go. So there's, yeah, there's the, there's the pride yeah. books uh, for June, 2018. Um, oh yeah. So then we move on to what we are reading now, yes. um, which mine is, is also true crime. So we got Yay, there's our true crime. We got, got another little link there. Um so we talked about this uh on another book riot podcast. Um but I am a serial book hopper and so I was finally buckling down. Speaking of of um being traveling alone actually. Um this past weekend I rented I did a staycation. I rented a, a hotel room in Chicago and um just you know like getting ready for the new job and just having some time alone. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was awesome. I just brought a pile of books and I ordered room service and it was amazing. So one of the books I was really delving into was um, Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder by Pew Eatwell. Um, This came out last year from W.W. Norton. It talks about the the case of the Black Dahlia. um, If you don't know it, um, it's Elizabeth Short in, I believe, 1947, um, was found uh, her body in Los Angeles. She was found um, severed at the waist and basically dumped next to like a sidewalk. And she was like drained of blood. I'm so sorry. This is a lot of detail. Anyway, it's a very <laughs> it's a very gruesome, famous murder because they never solved it. But Pew Eatwell has like she's pretty much like, no, I solved it. So um, (laughs) that's, she did a lot of research in uh, cases that used to be, uh, they were closed, not cases closed, you know what I mean? Like files that were not available Mm -hmm. for research. And um, it's really good. It's really readable. Uh, Speaking of Pride Month though, there was one section where I've been like, "Mm," and it's when she talks about Hollywood movie stars who were like gay and bi. And she names a bunch of people where I was like, I've wanted them to be by and then or like because they're like I love old movie stars and she talks about like Barbara Stanwyck and like Judy Garland and I was like I think some of this might be like salacious gossip that's been like around Hollywood for a long time but I don't know for sure maybe she knows something I don't but anyway <laughs> Black Dahlia Red Rose um it's really good uh, and and just very sort of soberly uh stated and it's not it's not like a salacious look at the case which which is great Yes, I think we both enjoy our true crime, but do not like particulars, particularly, sal- particularly salacious you got versions. Like we would both prefer. Oh my gosh, I can't even talk. Oh, good for a podcast, though, man. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember we picked that. I remember we picked that one up at Book Expo last year, and I haven't read it yet. But uh, yeah, I'm glad you read it. it. Looks good. I'm glad you liked it. Um, so I have been reading Sarah McBride's memoir most of the last, I don't know, four or five days. Um, I'm hoping to finish it tonight. I only have a little bit left, but, um, the next book that I am looking forward to is called Text Me When You Get Home by Kayleen Schaefer. Um, this is a book about the evolution and triumph of modern female friendship. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a book about why female friendship is awesome and why we 
have, I think, a difficult time in, sometimes embracing it and talking about it and giving it the value in our lives that we that it deserves. Um, so the intro talks a lot about how we have a lot of ways of talking about other important relationships in our lives with our families, with our romantic partners, with our children, with our stuff like that. But we don't have really good um, expectations or clear clear guidelines for even like what a female friendship ought to be. And so um, there's a lot of discussion about just how we build those and why they're important and um, why they matter. And so I don't know, it just seems like another like warm, not warm and fuzzy, but sort of like warm, cheering, yay book about why ladies are awesome. Um, And she (laughs) talks about Parks and Rec in the intro. So we're already like best friends now because I love Parks and Recreation so much. And this one got recommended by a bunch of different friends who've read it and thought it was great. So um, I'm excited to dive into that one next. Uh, Text Me When You Get Home by Kayleen Schaefer, which just came out earlier this year, maybe like February or March, I think. That's so yeah. pretty new still. That's awesome. I was – didn't I like – I posted that on Instagram stories from Astoria Bookshop or whatever, and you were like, I just picked mm-hmm. that up from the library or whatever. Um Yes. And don't you just love yes. it when your friend says, text me when you get home? I just feel so loved when that happens. Yes. That's exactly what the intro talks about. It's like, why do we say that to each other? And it is not like, it is a safety thing of like, let me know that you're safe. But it's also like an expression of like love and care. Like, I care for you. I want to make sure that you're okay. I want you to know that I'm thinking about you and that you are important to me. Oh, it's so um, nice. Which is just like, yes, it is. <laughs> it's so great. Like, people who do that and want to do that. So anyway, lady friends, yay. And I can't wait to finish this one. So there we are. All right. And with that, I think we have come to the end of our podcast. So um, yes. So we have. Um, you can find us on social media if you would like to add to any of these wonderful conversations we have had <laughs> in this episode. Um, on Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Yes. And uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast, then uh, thank you. We are excited about that. And we would encourage you to rate and review us on iTunes. Um, Ratings and reviews help people find us more easily. Um, And then you can also subscribe in the podcast of your choice so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. (laughs) 